Well, hello, Harvest. It's good to be with you. I'm thankful to Matt uh, for him, uh, his desire to share his story with us about what God's doing. And we would love to hear your stories. As Matt said, we want to know what God is doing, how God is at work, what he's teaching you. Um, So if you go to our website, there's a tab that says COVID-19s. And under that, there's a place to submit your story so that we can rejoice with you in what God is doing. Um, Another Another thing that we thought would be uh, fun and helpful for our body is if you would take a picture of your household today as you watch uh, our online service and send that into us. We miss uh, seeing your faces. I'm sure you miss seeing each other. So we would love to get pictures of our church body watching online uh, church um, and to motivate you Uh, We will randomly select someone that that submits a picture uh, and we will give you a $25 gift card to Hidden River uh, for some great coffee as you shelter in place. Um, Hopefully you watched the Bible Project video of 1st and 2nd Samuel to kind of remind you where we are. We're jumping right into 2nd Samuel 5 and 6 this week. Let's pray before we begin. Jesus, we thank you again that um, we can gather together in this this way online and still hear your word. Uh, God, we need your word and we pray uh, that you would help us to concentrate right now. Lord, that we wouldn't be distracted, that we'd get over the the awkwardness of of trying to do church over a video uh, screen. Lord, I pray that our hearts, our minds, our our attention would be on you and that you'd speak to us through your word. Uh, Jesus, we want to not just come and hear your word, but we want to to be hearers and doers of your word. We pray that you would change us through this time, God, as as we look at 2 Samuel 5 and 6. We pray these things in in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, I've titled uh, this sermon, Tremble Before the Lord with Rejoicing. And I know over the last few weeks, we haven't had a truth statement, but I, I wanted to get back in that habit as we're um, in Second Samuel again. So here's our truth statement this week. When we recognize the holiness of God and the gravity of our sin, we rightly fear the Lord. And we rejoice because the Lord has made a way for us to be in his presence. And I'll say that again. When we recognize the holiness of God and the gravity of our sin, we rightly fear the Lord and we rejoice because the Lord has made a way for us to be in his presence. So chapter 5 verse 1 says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. So the elders come to David, and they acknowledge that he truly was the king that God had given them. You you might not remember this, but just in the previous chapters of 2 Samuel, another king um, rose to power, sort of. While David was was king over part of the kingdom, another king tried to take uh, over the kingdom. But the people had finally come to their senses. And I talked about that last week. And I, I don't know if you remember when you came to your senses, when you realized that Jesus was the only one 
who really could be the king. You recognize that he is the Lord, that you needed him to be your savior, that he was the king who had the power to go out before you to fight your battles, the only one who could defeat sin and death. So they say to David, they say that that we are your bone and flesh, right? They're saying we're your body. They're recognizing that David is the head, that they're the body. They're submitting to King David. They're saying, we will do your bidding. We trust in you. We look to you to care for us and to nourish us as your body. And this is what happens when we come to Christ, right? When we come to Jesus as his body, acknowledging that he is the head. And when we say to him, Jesus, what you, whatever you say, that's what goes. We trust in you. We need you. We need you to sustain us. We need you to nourish us. It's you, you are our Savior. And that's what, that's what these people are saying to David in verse 2. They say, it was you who led out and brought in Israel, right? You are our Savior, David. They recognize that he was the one that led them in battle against the enemies and led them in victory. And David did this over and over again in 1 Samuel. And he continues to do that in 2 Samuel. And the people of Israel that had not trusted David as their king were foolish, Right? Here's David, the one who's demonstrated his ability repeatedly to save them. But instead they trusted in unproven kings with no real power. And that sounds very familiar to us. Right? We know that Jesus has defeated the enemies of sin and death. And we too are foolish when we go out and trust any other king, no matter what it is that they promise us. And I'm assuming that in this last month or so, God's been exposing some of those other kings that we trust, some of those other things that we trust. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's the position that you had at work. Maybe it's relationships or affirmation uh, from people. I mean, the list goes on and on of, of the things that we trust in. But the reality is Jesus is the king. He's the only one who can save. He's the only one who can satisfy us. And he does this by giving his life for us. I I love this in Colossians 2, 14 and 15. It says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is what our King Jesus has done. Well, we'll skip ahead to uh, 2 Samuel 6. And, and David, as he goes on in 5, he grows in, as this king. He grows in, in power. He defeats uh, the Philistines, more enemies of Israel. Um, so David, what he's done is he, he takes over Jerusalem and he, he makes it the capital uh, for God's kingdom. Um, and now all that was needed was to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord right, to bring that to Jerusalem. So then, then he would uh, set it in the, uh, in the tabernacle that he would erect on Mount Zion. And now Jerusalem wouldn't just be the political capital, but it would also be the religious center for the nation as well. So verse 3 of chapter 6, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart, right? And, and that should remind us, although it's been a while, so I understand if it doesn't, but it should remind us of what the Philistines did when they tried to get rid of the Ark of the Lord and they sent it back, they, they put it on a cart. And it says, And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, 
which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Now, the ark was supposed to be carried by Levites. And they were supposed to carry it on poles. Um, this was laid out multiple times in, in Scripture. Uh, one of the places that talks about the ark is, is Numbers 4.15. It says, And when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary uh, and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after the sons of Koath shall come carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, right? They weren't supposed to touch it. It says, lest they die. So let's see what happens here in chapter 6. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Right? There's a rejoicing. There's a celebration that's going on because they know that the Ark of the Covenant is finally coming. Right, The, the place where the Lord is, is sitting on the throne above the cherubim will be with them, the, the very presence of God. And it says this in verse 6, And when they came to the, fret, the threshing floor at Nacon, Uzzah uh, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Uh, Okay, so the oxen tripped or or something happened. Oxen stumbles and and the cart was unstable. And Uzzah reaches out his hand to stabilize the the ark so it doesn't fall and hit the ground. It says in verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his heir. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, for many of us, we recoil at this story. David certainly did, right? He was, it says he was angry. He was afraid. Now, it doesn't say that David's anger was directed at the Lord. It says, because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, right? Because the Lord had killed Uzzah for this thing that he did. He, he touched the ark, even though they were not supposed to. And David hated what happened, Right, that Uzzah, who probably without thinking, reached out his hand to stabilize his ark, or to stabilize the ark, and because of this irreverent act, he died. And my guess is, if you were there, or if I was there, we would have had a reaction similar to David's. And I suppose that one reason is that we can put ourselves in Uzzah's shoes. Right? We, we can just imagine ourselves reacting in the exact same way without even thinking, reaching our hands out because our instincts would just take over. And we also have great sympathy for those who loved him. And it may seem or it probably seems harsh to us that he died for this. Right? And you might even find yourself thinking, but he was just trying to help. Right? Like we talk so much about how important the, the matters of the heart are. And, and if he was just trying to do good, then why was he punished for this? I think this story reveals multiple issues in our thinking. As we think, like Uzzah did, um, that, that the ground was, was more polluted than Uzzah was, as Jonathan Edwards says. Right? We don't understand how devastating 
our sin is, how truly wicked it is in comparison with God. The elder team right now is reading a book called Hearers and Doers. The title comes from the book of James. So it's it's about how do we how do we make disciples that are uh, not only hearers of the word, right? People that 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 read the word of God, take it in, but also doers of the word. People that live out, that actually follow God as the word has instructed us to do. And there's one point in this book that I just love that, that it, it, it really hammers home. Um, he, he tells, uh, the author tells us that the world is making disciples of us as Christians, right? The church is to make disciples for Christ, but the world is also trying to disciple us. So he tells us as pastors, what we need to do is deprogram some of that discipling that the world has done and reprogram um, our brains with what the Word of God says because there are all these messages from the world that we, we get all the time, many of which we're not even aware of. One of those messages is, I'm not that bad or, or my sin isn't really that big of a deal. And if I'm honest, I don't want to believe that my sin is that bad. Uh, And I talked about this last week. I think it's generally because we compare ourselves to other people. And when we compare ourselves to others, we really don't think we are that bad. But what we need to do is recognize the holiness of God. And I've just been wrestling all week. Like, how do I describe how, how holy God is. How do I describe how, how different God is than we are? Now, I think I said this last week that every one of us has a view of God that is too low, right? Even, even the person with the loftiest view of God is so far off. Right? Scripture says things like, there is none like you, and it's not an exaggeration, right? We know nothing like God. I'd encourage you this week to pick up your Bibles and go to places like Isaiah 6 uh, or Isaiah 40 or Job 38 through 40. Um, uh, Read the creation account. Read uh, the book of Revelation. Read um, uh, read even Colossians 1, the description of of Jesus. Uh, Because these are are places that I like to go to, to... to be in awe of God. When I realize that my view of God, my understanding of God is, is too small, that I've made him too small in my own eyes, these are places where I go to be reminded of who God is. Um, if you're familiar with the gorge, I'm sure most of you uh, know that spot on Highway 14 when you're driving out towards the gorge. It's just before that, that sketchy little bridge. It's like on the side of a cliff. Just before that, you, you, you come out of the trees and uh, if, it's, if it's a sunny day, you have this incredible view of the gorge. And, and you can't help, or at least I can't help, but just being blown away by the majesty of this view. And, and my guess is that you've been to uh, a scenic uh, viewpoint like this somewhere. And, and if you're like me, you take out a camera because you just don't want to forget how amazing this is. Or you want to go and show somebody else like how incredible this scenery was. So you take a picture and, and then you look at the picture on your viewfinder and you're disappointed. You realize like it doesn't compare. And you even hold the picture up to, to the scene and, and it's... And not only is it tiny, but, but it just doesn't capture, uh, it doesn't capture the, the true uh, view 
that, that you're taking in. And I think that we do something similar to that with God in the Bible. Why We read things in, in, uh, in Isaiah 40, like the nations are like a drop in a bucket compared to God. Right or or or, or God that He has measured the the oceans, the seas, the waters in the hollow of His hand. We read that, but instead of recognizing how incredible God is, how majestic He is, we just get this little snapshot. And, and the problem is we don't recognize that it's it's a little snapshot that doesn't actually capture how great God is. Not because the words of Scripture aren't good enough, but, but we settle for this little picture. We walk away and thinking, oh yeah, I know what God is like. But really, we haven't gazed into who God is. We, we, haven't, we haven't recognized that God is so much greater than even words can describe. That my little picture of the gorge isn't good enough. And similarly, this little snapshot of God that I so often settle for, it doesn't really, it doesn't really accurately tell me who God is, what He's like, how holy He is, how majestic He is, how mighty He is. And for many of us, maybe all of us, our response today it needs to be coming to God and confessing to Him how small we've made Him in our minds and in our lives. And then humility to ask Him to help us grasp, to help us to grow in knowing how great, how mighty, how marvelous He is. And, and then maybe go to one of those passages, Isaiah 6, Isaiah 40, Job 38 through 40, Revelation, the creation story, any of those, and, and just asking God, to reveal himself to us, to remind us, to teach us, to show us how great and how awesome he is. Because we, we just don't grasp how great our God is. We don't grasp what it means that he's holy. Like We might have a definition down in our mind of what it means that God is holy, but we don't understand the full picture. If our picture of, of the holiness of God, of the, the greatness of God is inaccurate, then we certainly will not understand the gravity of our sin. And don't get me wrong, I'm not excited to go around telling everybody that we're just messed up sinners. Um, I know I've used this illustration before, but if you had some horrible disease, um, but, but the disease was completely symptom-free, and you went to your doctor for a normal checkup, and the doc runs some tests, and she discovers that you have this disease and that it's bad. It's the worst case scenario. It's actually amazing that you're still alive. What would you expect from your doctor in that moment? Well, you would expect that your doctor would give you the whole picture of your health. right? You wouldn't want her to sugarcoat it. You want her to tell you everything. You want to know what the diagnosis is and the course of treatment. What's your best Option. And scripture is kind of like a doctor here, right? The diagnosis is that we're dead in sin. And you come to scripture and you say, are, are you serious? Is it that bad? And scripture says, yes, sin is that serious. It's worse than you can imagine. I, I, I can barely describe how bad it is. And you say, well, what do I do? And scripture tells us the course of treatment. The only thing that can save you is Jesus. We have to understand how bad our sin is, how desperately we need God to save us. And, and now maybe, maybe you do. Maybe, maybe you are just 
blown away. You're in awe of God. And, and you rightly see how great your sin is. But maybe still you come to this story with Uzzah dying. And, and, and there's something in you that still just isn't right. Now I wonder if maybe you've just come so accustomed to God's grace that it's no longer amazing grace to you. You're no longer blown away that God has shown you grace. Uh, R.C. Sproul tells a story um, about his first year teaching at a Bible college. He had a class that all the freshmen had to take. It was a class of 250 students. I think it was like a spiritual formation class. And he uh, had the students in the first day. He told them there are going to be three papers, uh, one due September 30th, the second due October 30th, the third due November 30th. And they were due on his desk that day at noon. And he said there were two acceptable reasons for your papers being late. One was you're sick, like so sick you're in the hospital. And the second was an immediate de- or a death of an immediate family member. Those are the only two excuses that would uh, allow you to turn in a, a paper late. So September 30th comes, the day the first paper is due, and 225 students turn in that paper. 25 of them come to the professor and they say, I'm sorry, I'm still getting used to this transition from high school to, to the rigors of college is there any way, like, could I please have an extension, right? And they're just begging. And he remembers what it was like to be a freshman. He says, okay, I'll give you an extension. Yeah, and, and they are grateful, those 25 students. Well, October 30th comes around. And now 200 students turn in their papers on time. And 50 students are begging. They say, prof, we... We're dealing with midterms. We have other papers that are due. Is there any way? Could we please? We're, we're begging you for an extension. He says, fine, I'll give it to you. But this is it. There will be no extension for the final paper. And he said that, that they actually broke out into a song, like celebrating him. They were so grateful. Then November 30th comes around, right? The date of the final paper. And only 100 students turn in the paper on time. And he's beside himself. He'd warned them that there, there would not be an extension this time. So he, he goes around and he starts asking students, like, is your, do you have your paper? They say no. And, and he grabs his, his, his black grading book. He opens it up and he says, all right, that's an F. He goes to the next person. Do you have your paper? Nope, that's an F. And on and on he goes. There's, there's 150 students without their papers. And uh, after a few, one of them says, this isn't fair. And others say, yeah, that's not fair. And, and, and the professor looks at them and, and he says, not fair? And he says, you want what's fair. And, and, and this one guy says, yes, we demand what is fair. And he says, all right, uh, Mr. Johnson, I believe. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you didn't turn in your second paper on time, did you? No, I didn't, sir. Okay, I'm going to give you what's fair. And he marks an F for that second paper. And, and, and they were beside themselves. This class with the first group of papers that were late, they were grateful for the grace that was given them. The second time, they were less grateful. And by this third time, the time the third paper was due, they expected forgiveness. They even demanded forgiveness 
And if they didn't get it, they felt like they were victims of an injustice. But he used this as an opportunity to explain grace. He said the very essence of grace is that it is not required. And if we find ourselves thinking for a moment that God owes us grace, it should be this flashing light, this red flag, reminding us that we have confused what grace and justice is, that we've misplaced our amazement. I think it's easy for us as Christians to be so accustomed to grace that we've stopped being amazed by it. When's the last time you looked at the cross and like one of those students said, that's not fair. That's not fair that Jesus, who committed no sin, would take on our sin. R.C. Sproul, in uh, the book, The Holiness of God, he said, the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If ever a person had room to complain for injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here's where our astonishment should be focused. We forget how incredible the grace of God is. That God would let Jesus make the payment for sin in our place. It is so easy to forget how amazing grace is. And when we see God's holiness and how wicked our sin is, not only do we appropriately fear the Lord, but we rejoice that God has made a way for us to be in his presence. We see what Jesus had to do in order for us to be reconciled to God, and we rejoice. So let's continue in chapter 6. David asks in verse 9, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So what he does is he leaves, uh, he leaves the ark at the house of Obed-Edom, a foreigner, and it stays there three months. And we aren't told much about what happens in those three months. Just half a sentence. It says, And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And that news reaches David. And then in 2 Samuel 6.12 it says, And it was told King David, The Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And verse 12 continues, So David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. David feared God. He feared the ark. He remembered what happened to Uzzah. But all he needed to do was hear that Obed-Edom and his household was blessed by the Lord because of the ark. Right? This is certainly a reversal of what happened to Uzzah. Right? The news was all David needed. I'm sure that he was in his, in his uh, palace back in Jerusalem, longing to bring the ark as he had hoped to do, as he had planned to do. And, and then when David, he remembered though that when he first tried to bring the ark, that Uzzah was killed. Now, before that, there was all this rejoicing, right? You might remember, before Uzzah was killed, they were rejoicing, David and the people. Now, this time when David goes to bring the ark, there's a rejoicing too, but now it's a rejoicing with trembling. There's a trepidation here. There's a fear of the Lord. We also notice there's no mention of a cart here, so I think, I think we can assume that it's Levites carrying it on poles as they'd been instructed. They were coming to God by the terms that he had laid out. Verse 13 tells us that, that they started their journey, and they got six steps into it, and then they made a sacrifice 
to the Lord, right? There's a, a fuller understanding of who Yahweh is, his holiness, and of their sin. Earlier, David had asked, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Well, it's only by atonement being made, right? How can sinful man be with holy God? It's only through atonement. So there's great rejoicing. Verse 14 David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. I wonder how often do we really rejoice and celebrate that we can be in the presence of the Lord because God has made atonement, that Jesus has made atonement for us. Well, this celebration of David and the people lasted the whole way home. And, and as the ark arrived, David's first wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, she's looking out the window and she isn't pleased. She sees David not, not dressed like a king in royal robes, but in an ephod. And, and the way the text reads it, it seems like that's all that he's wearing. There, there was not much to uh, the, the ephod. Um, it, it, to some degree, his nakedness was on display here. And, and this isn't the way you expect a king to act, right? There's no display of power or prestige or, or pomp in David, just this raw celebration. Well, once they arrived there, there were more burnt offerings that were made to God as, as, as ordered by David. And then either David or perhaps the priest um, under David's instructions blesses all the people. And then David gives all the people food to continue to, to celebrate that, that God's presence was now here in Jerusalem with the people. And in all of this, we we get another picture of, of God's king and what God's king is like, what God's king does. God's king doesn't just go out and fight our battles, right? He brings his people to God. Verse 20, David comes home, it says, to bless his household, but Michael, his wife, confronts him. She says um, in verse 20, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Verse 21, And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. I wonder how concerned are we about what other people think? When it comes to our relationship with Christ, how reserved are we? because of what others think, whether it's Christians at church or, or co-workers or neighbors. How much do we hold back in giving God the glory, the one who saved us from sin and death? I, I don't think that we really know how to celebrate what God has done. All right? in, in David, I see this joyful humility, and, and I want I want a joyful humility before the Lord. Here's David, the king of Israel. If someone has a reason to be full of himself, you'd think it would be a king. But he refers himself to as a prince, or a lot of people think it'd be better translated leader of Israel. He doesn't even call himself the king. David abandoned the trappings of royalty. 
He knew who the true king was. There was no room uh, for arrogance here in David. David knew whose due the glory. It was the glorious one. He understood whose kingdom it was. And there was a rejoicing that David was in God's kingdom. That, that they could be in the presence of God. I wonder, do we know the joy of being in God's kingdom? Do you have that joy? Do we have a sense of awe as we recognize this holy God that is nothing like us? When we think of the cross, are we amazed that that Jesus would extend his grace to us? That he would die for you? I, I encourage you, I don't know how long this shelter in place will continue. I don't know how long our life, our lives will be slowed down the ways they are, but I encourage you to make the most of this time, right? That, that we would capture this time and, and that we would, um, we would give special attention to the union that we have in Christ. Uh, in, in normal life, in pre-COVID life, one of the biggest reasons I hear for not spending uh, much time focused on prayer or not spending time in the Word was, oh, I don't have enough time. I think for most of us, we have a lot of time. Like Even if you're working, all your night activities are canceled. We have a lot of time. Eh, I don't want to waste this time. We, we won't be able to get this time back. Um, outside of people's physical health, my biggest concern is that we as God's people would take a hiatus from God in all of this. Uh, Don't waste this time that God has given us. It it might mean waking up 30, 45 minutes earlier before the rest of your household is up. Or or maybe it means watching a, a show or two less in order to spend time each day abiding in the vine as John 15 talks about. I'd encourage you, let's not settle for these little snapshots of God. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that we can know you. We thank you that you have given us your word. God, that that we can come to your word and not just be hearers. Lord, we don't want to be a a, a church uh, of people that just hear your word, but I pray that we'd be doers as well, that we would follow what your word says, God, that we would follow hard after you, Jesus. Lord, I, I... Pray for my brothers and sisters. God, will you help us to make the most of this time? I pray that we would treasure you, Christ, above all else. Lord, will you help us to love one another? Would you help us to love our neighbors, anyone we come into contact with, Jesus? We pray that you would raise up labors for the harvest, Lord, that there would be people that would come to know you through this global pandemic, Lord, and that we would be a part of sharing the gospel. Lord, it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Well, Matt uh, Eldridge is going to be leading us live on YouTube at 1040 uh, in some songs. Again, feel free to type out praises. You can type out scripture um, in the little comment section there. Uh, And I just so look forward, Harvest, to when we all get to see each other again face to face.